Hey everyone, this podcast is brought to you by the Classic Learning Test, a classically based alternative to the SAT and ACT, which is the fastest growing college entrance exam in America today. More than 130 colleges now accept the CLT, and many of these colleges have endorsed it as their preferred college admissions test. Students benefit from same-day results and can share them with colleges at no additional charge. To learn more, head over to cltexam.com. Again, that's cltexam.com to learn more or to register. Welcome back to Libromania, a podcast for the book-obsessed, featuring interviews with contemporary authors, discussions about key figures and movements in literature history, examinations of various genres and current events in the lit world, and celebrations of book nerddom, bookstores, book design, book collections, and more. I'm David Kern. This is Chapter 10, in which I chat with biographer Corey McLaughlin about one of the most fascinating, unlikely, and tragic stories of literary success in the last hundred years. This is the story of John Kennedy Toole and his beloved book, A Confederacy of Dunces. So Geralde is sitting in his office and he gets a little publishing leaflet from LSU Press. And he's looking through and he sees the cover of Confederacy of Dunces and reads the description. Now, of course, when he looks at the image of Ignatius, he immediately thinks there's a sort of sense of humor here. So he orders the novel from LSU. And almost immediately upon receiving it, he reads through it, he buys the rights. Now, this is before it became a bestseller. So he saw something in the novel. So they publish a couple thousand books and they send it out. No marketing. And he starts getting these, this word that people are down in Barceloneta, the beach. They got the book and there's people like laughing out loud on the beach. And the way he told the story is someone's sitting there on the beach holding the book. They're laughing out loud, cracking up, tears coming down. Someone comes up and said, what are you reading? The reader says the Confederacy of Dunces. And the books start flying off the shelves. So within a month or two months or something like that, they're having to reprint more and reprint more and reprint more. Zero dollars in marketing. They didn't put a single poster up. It was completely organic. It was word of mouth. It was viral before the internet. So I think for certain readers, it just, they get it, they latch onto it, and it spreads and people share the book and it becomes a kind of treasured book in the libraries. And then for some other people, they despise it. They just, they try to read it. They get through the first 10 pages and put it down and say, I can't stand another word from Ignatius. And, and that's it. One late afternoon in the fall of 1976, as Walker Percy, the award-winning author of books like The Moviegoer and Love in the Ruins, was finishing up a day of teaching at Loyola University in New Orleans, he was approached by an old woman, dressed in her Sunday best and holding a white box tied with a string. In the box, she claimed, was the manuscript of a novel her son, John, had written a few years earlier. She told Percy how her son had committed suicide, believing that the book would never get published, but that he had been a genius and that this was a great book. As Corey McLaughlin tells it in his book, Butterfly and the Typewriter, Percy was cornered. Quote, As a Southern gentleman, he could not in good conscience reject the pleas of a mother who endured the grief of her son's suicide. So he took the box from her and offered his condolences. End quote. He brought the book home with him and, too busy to address it right away, ultimately passed it to his wife, Bunt, who was primarily interested because the novel seemed to be about New Orleans itself, a place with which she was developing a deep fascination. A few days later, Bunt Percy insisted that Walker read it too. Again, here's how McLaughlin tells it. Quote, holding respect for her judgment, he was obliged to give Toole a chance. He sat down to read the tattered pages. He prided himself on being able to determine the quality of writing after reading only the first paragraph, 
Immediately, he recognized Toole's keen talent for observation. In a single paragraph through setting, character, and description, he masterfully captured that ineffable texture of New Orleans. Walker was hooked. But it was too early to discuss editorial decisions in detail. Percy was unsure if a publisher would accept it, so he began asking people around town to read it. They came back with mixed reviews. Some people liked it, others did not. Percy read a few chapters to his class at Loyola, and they recognized Toole's unprecedented and accurate portrayal of New Orleans. But when he asked his own publisher to consider the manuscript, they declined. At the very least, Percy knew he had a work that elicited response. No one seemed indifferent to the novel. It just needed some traction, a way for publishers to see the vision of its publication and readers' reactions. End quote. And thanks to Percy's encouragement, this novel did indeed see the light of day. That novel, of course, is A Confederacy of Dunces, and that old woman with the manuscript in a box, she was Thelma Toole, the highly motivated mother of John Kennedy Toole. And the thing is, she may have been right. Her son may just have been a genius, although it took some time for people to realize it. A medieval literature scholar, and side note, a lover of Bethius, Toole was a college professor who wrote Confederacy while living in Puerto Rico in his mid-twenties, teaching English to Puerto Rican soldiers on behalf of the United States military. The picaresque story of Ignatius Riley, a buffoonish sort of modern Don Quixote, Confederacy is the quintessential New Orleans novel, and is without a doubt one of the most important works of Southern fiction produced in the 20th century. When Toole first wrote the novel, he felt like he had produced something quite good, something worthwhile, something that would empower his family, and for which he could be remembered. And so he sent it off to one of the most prominent literary editors in America, Robert Gottlieb, who was then head of Simon & Schuster and had worked with artists like Ray Bradbury. Gottlieb saw promise in the book, but had some issues with it. So over the next few years, Gottlieb and Toole went back and forth, back and forth, trying to figure out what to do with the book. Gottlieb insisting on changes, Toole unable to make them. In the end, Gottlieb never published the book. Sadly, as their negotiations over the state of the book began to decline, so too did Toole's mental health. He began to descend into a darkness with which his family was quite familiar. His own father spent many of his final years in a state of paranoia, locked in his own home before ultimately dying of dementia. Toole's uncle had committed suicide, and there were other stories hovering around their circle about characters who'd lost their wits. And tragically, at just 31 years old, John Kennedy Toole ended his own life on a rural stretch of road outside Biloxi, Mississippi, leaving behind his manuscript with his audacious mother. Soon that novel became her primary interest, her reason for living. It became her mission to get it published. Over the next decade, she sent it to dozens of publishers, large and small, and continually received rejections. Most publishers were concerned about the process of publishing a novel by a dead author, given the challenges of promoting the book and the impossibility of a follow-up. They just couldn't justify the investment, they said. And that is where Walker Percy came into the picture. Thanks to the way he championed the book, it did indeed get published in 1981 by LSU Press, 12 years after Toole's death. And then it blew up. It was more successful and more beloved than anyone could have expected, ultimately becoming the first novel to be awarded a posthumous Pulitzer Prize. The first and still only Pulitzer Prize awarded to a book published by a university press. Today, it's a beloved book with a cult following. A comic novel in an age with few great comic novels. A hilarious novel with incredible style, but a dark undercurrent. A complex novel with some of the most memorable characters in American literature. A couple of years ago, Cormac McLaughlin wrote Butterfly and the Typewriter about the life of John Kennedy Toole and the story behind Confederacy of Dunces. The rest of this episode will take you deep into this story as Corey and I examined the legacy of this book and as perhaps genius author.
I guess my first question is this. The, since the publication of A Confederacy of Dunces, as, as your book details a little bit, there has been a lot of uh, rumors about the life of John Kennedy Toole and where this book came from. And um, you know, some of it seems to have been spread by the wild imaginations of editors of uh, critics rather. And so yeah. is, is part of your goal in writing this book to eliminate some of that mystery and get some answers that, that, that have, that have, you know, heretofore basically just been, been conjecture and rumor. Yeah, it was, <clears throat> I mean, my goal ultimately was to try and flesh out the complexity of the man and, and the artist, which was really difficult to do for yeah. someone who was honestly pretty shielded. I mean, even his friends knew him well, but they always kind of said, you know, there was an element of him that just was not forthcoming. He wasn't, he wasn't like an open book or say no pun intended, but um, I, I think I, I just didn't want to base uh, an interpretation of him on what seemed to be speculation. Um, and the, this, the narratives about him that either are about, you know, homosexuality or depression or whatever seem to be reductionist. Ultimately, they, they, they seem to hmm. give a narrative that says, well, here's the reason why he killed himself. Um, so for the, you know, dejected artist, they tend to latch on to this notion that, you know, the, the, uh, publishing institution didn't realize the genius that was before them. And, you know, he couldn't take any more rejection. And so it sent him into a downward spiral. Um, the gay community in new Orleans, particularly, uh, felt a kind of ownership because this narrative, <clears throat> kind of validated the sense of how destructive it can be to stay in the closet. Of course, in order for that narrative to work, you have to presume that uh, he was homosexual and, and had these sort of repressed homosexual tendencies. But hmm. the problem that I found is that when I actually interviewed people that knew him, that witnessed every chapter of his life, and I got interviews from people that knew him from every chapter of his life, hmm. Hmm. none of this jibed with, with the people that, um, that knew him, hmm. uh, that the, the, the picture emerging was a lot more complex. And if I had to, I mean, if I had to pin it down on, you know, a couple of things, I would say it, it probably has more to do with the dynamic in his home life hmm. than any kind of social pressure or you know, feelings of, um, I don't know, normalizing himself, whatever that means, if that makes sense. Do you mean that by it, do you mean his ultimate decision to take his own life? Uh, yeah, I mean, well, well, I guess, I guess a lot of it, you could say, uh, you know, the, the, the choices he made in life. Oh, right. Okay. But, okay. but ultimately, like I was saying in my introduction, um, I think I mentioned it in my introduction <laughs> is that I began with this notion that I really didn't want to read his life through his suicide. And I feel like that's kind of, that's, that was sort of the, the default mode yeah, in, in yeah. approaching it. And, and then you ultimately, and part of it, Walker Percy did too, which I have a lot of respect for Walker Percy, but his forward does this work of kind of positioning the novel through the lens of tools demise. 
Mm. Um, and, and while that can be helpful in some ways, it's also really restrictive. Yeah. Um, so, you know, when I teach literature, I really resist the idea of using a person's biography to, you know, decode every aspect of an artistic work, but right, uh, even right. more so, I really don't like the idea of, you know, using the artistic work to kind of graph an interpretation on the life of the uh, artist. So mm. I would have all of that kind of battling in, in my head, I guess. You mentioned, you mentioned that, that, that over the years, people sort of grasped onto the, the sort of legend of, John Kennedy tool of the Confederacy of Dunces. Yeah. And, and they would, I don't want to say use it, but it became very important to them. You know, you mentioned the gay community oh, yes. in New Orleans and, and you mentioned how in some ways that may have, become, may have come from Walker Percy, who in some ways I, I find that forward to be, to read almost more like marketing copy than <laughs> anything else. <Yeah. laughs> um, but, but why do you think that that legend has become so... Um, why did, why does it, why has it become so meaningful to so many groups of people? I mean, it goes, you mentioned, you talk in the book, it goes beyond the gay community in New Orleans. What, what was the, what is the, what is it about that particular legend, his particular story that has become so meaningful as the book has kind of become, you know, at, at minimum sort of a, a pretty profound cult following as it's gained that. It seems yeah. like it's, um, you know, lots of people have, have passed away in the way that he did. Uh, lots of people have written books that were, not successful during their lives. You know, you think of poets like Keats or something like that. But his this particular legend has meant so much to so many people. Why do you think that is? Uh, so, yeah, I, I've kind of struggled with this question um, because I'm 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 amazed in some ways in how personal people in all walks of life latch onto the story. And I've also been taken back by when I've done talks, how many people read the novel almost as um, a a ritual. They read it hmm. annually. They'll read it around hmm. Mardi Gras season or they'll read it around, you know, in the winter or something like that. Hmm. I, I mean, I, in a lot of ways, it's the portrait of an artist, but it's the most devastating portrait of an artist. Um, hmm. You know, we're accustomed, I think, to whether it's justified or not, associating artistic sensibility with depression, um, mm. and other conditions, uh, you know, these, these sort of extreme highs and extreme lows and struggles, uh, and, you know, being artistically inclined and trying to make a life of it as well, uh, comes with, it's sort of part and parcel with it, right? I mean, you get extreme highs and you get extreme lows. Um, rejection is horrible. <laughs> it feels miserable. Mm. Um, and, and so I, I think a lot of these notions are kind of universal to the human experience, but at the same time, they are heightened uh, when we look at uh, artists in all uh, genres, I would say. Hmm. So my sense, you know, from just talking to people is, is that they see some part of themselves or some part of someone they know or love in Tool. Uh, he is kind of a... Hmm. Um, kind of a victim in a lot of ways, uh, you know, from a, a, a really horrible family dynamic, hmm. uh, a mother that was, um, I'll use Dave Kubox, his friend from Puerto Rico. I mean, he, he 
he called her a splendid monster. I don't know if that was the, <laughs> one of the most perfect um, ways of describing her. Uh, so we all have, you know, or we know someone with a dysfunctional family um, and then personal struggles. The sense as well, I think all of us feel like we, or many of us, I should say, feel like that what we thought we would be in life, it ends up not really meeting that goal oftentimes. And, and how do you kind of render that? Um, yeah. You know, you start off thinking I'm going to be, you know, a great athlete or I'm going to be a, a great artist or I'm going to be a novelist um, or I'm going to be CEO or whatever. And, and it ends up for most of us, you know, modest expectations are perhaps yeah. best. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so that kind of disappointment, but then, but then I think there is a, a, a kind of secondary layer where ultimately he's validated. And mm-hmm. so this feeds, sometimes it's productive. And honestly, I think sometimes it is not helpful. This feeds a sense of that if you have been rejected, that if your image of yourself does not quite meet with where you are in life currently, that it really has nothing to do with you or what you're doing. It's, it's the system or the man or, or whoever. Um, and, and really, it's just going to take time for genius to be illuminated. Hmm. You know, I mean, it goes back to that Swiftian quote, you know, where the title comes from. So I think people read into his life and his work. They see something there that they perhaps have struggled with themselves. Um, hmm. and, and sometimes it helps them. I think sometimes it's it creates a bit of a delusion as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I was struck while reading the book you, you, during the section when you talked about the, the sort of fraught process towards publication, the fraught road towards publication and the relationship between his editor, Simon & Schuster, Robert Gottlieb and, mm-hmm. and, and John Kennedy Toole that got one of Gottlieb's concerns. And Gottlieb, of course, is one of the most famous, important literary editors of the 20th century. But mm-hmm. he was concerned about the 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 universality of the novel that there wasn't enough. Um, I guess that's the best way of putting it. There wasn't enough that was going to appeal to enough people in the book. That seems, would you say that that was a valid concern looking all these years back? Was his, was his concern about the universal appeal of the novel justified and was it successful um, despite that? Or do you think that he was wrong and that there is a true universal appeal uh, to the novel? In other words, like, is the novel um, beloved despite its lack of universal appeal for some you know, strange reason that's maybe not it, it's too easy to put your finger, to, you know, to, to wrap our, our hands around, so to speak? Um, I'd, I'd actually say both. Uh, so, well, I'll first say that Gottlieb was wrong and the proof is in the pudding. Right. I mean, it, it ultimately, however anyone wants to interpret how it came to be um, such a successful novel, the fact is that it is a successful novel. And, and, and so, you know, Gottlieb was wrong. And, and in the end, um, he has momentarily, by the way, owned that. <laughs> um, you know, he's had some comments where he said, you know, as an editor, he you know, he made all kinds of mistakes. And if, if you want to look at what he rejected, ultimately becoming well-known or successful. So <laughs> <a> tough job. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I don't think he, he doesn't take much ownership. And in fact, I can tell you Gottlieb still doesn't like the novel. He still thinks it's a horrible novel. 
Um, but did he say he says horrible? Because it seems like he did. He wouldn't have said it quite that way to to Tool. I mean, doesn't he was critical and direct, but he never said it was horrible. <laughs> he said there was things that he liked about it, right? Yeah. Uh, yes, at the time. But when I interviewed him. Um, and I've had some exchanges with him since I, 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 I that's not a quote. I don't want to put horrible as sure, a quote, sure. um, but right. his experience afterwards of dealing with what happened at the offices of Simon and Schuster, uh, when tools showed up, <laughs> um, he knew that he was dealing with a kind of author that was becoming unhinged. Hmm. Um, and then with, he was still very personally insulted by how tools mother, uh, treated him. Mm-hmm. Um, so in you the, know, the, in the late seventies and eighties as the book grew in popularity. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I mean, the, the, the Foma essentially blamed Gottlieb for her son's suicide. I mean, she was very public about that. Hmm. Um, and she, she had some antisemitic jabs in there as well. So, hmm. you know, he's, he's still harbored a, a lot of animus, um, hmm. about that. Honestly, even when I interviewed him. Um, so, so I, I think he, he did tell me that he had gone back to read the book and he still found those flaws there. He saw the original kind of glimmer of potential, Yeah. but in the, in the book, in its current state, the one that is well-loved, he does not like, he does not think that it is a good novel. Does he, is he surprised at its appeal then? I mean, I guess he would, he would have to be, but does he, does he understand, perhaps is the better question, does he understand the appeal that it's, that it has? Um, you know, I'm not sure if he's put that much thought into it. I I, guess I'd have to ask him, right? (laughs) Yeah. You know, and, and I don't, I don't, a lot of people who, um, follow this story, really have a lot of bitterness towards Gottlieb. I don't feel yeah. that way personally. Yeah. Um, and, and, and so the, the thing I would balance is, is that I do see his letters as somewhat reasonable from kind of a business standpoint. Right. Um, right. And, and no matter what we want to talk about in terms of art, I mean, it, it, book publishing is still a business and he has to think about sure. yeah. uh, the market and readers. Um. Now he had a lot of leverage. I mean, he could have at the time published really whatever he wanted to publish and he could take risks, Sure, but he didn't see what tool was presenting him as a risk, you know, worth taking, nor did he see it as, you know, something like Joseph Heller's catch 22, which they worked, uh, you know, hand in hand in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. Um, but, but, but it's not like Heller sent off the novel, um, and Gottlieb said, "Hey, this is great. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Publish it was a it. collaboration. I mean, it, yeah, yeah. Um, now, I do think one thing that that, that Gottlieb I'm kind of miscommunication or the communication breakdown is that Gottlieb had this way of talking that was kind of coded and nuanced, and I think Tool wanted a bit more directive, um, and and and." And I will say one of the things I do find bothersome um, about Gottlieb is that he has a way of, in his letters particularly, he has a way of kind of complimenting and jabbing at the same time. Hmm. And so he'll, he'll, he'll almost sort of lift Tool up and then kind of break him down, hmm. um, you know, at, at, at the same time. And, and I think someone like Tool in his place 
that added to some of the psychological damage that was that was going on. It wasn't Gottlieb alone, sure, uh, but but I but I do think it had a part. Do you think that that uh, Tool was? Um, did he was he averse to collaboration in general? I mean, did he think of himself as as that being unnecessary? You know, compared to his own confidence in his in himself. Um, I don't. Like, like, I mean, you mentioned that Heller, you mentioned, you talk, in fact, you talk in the book about how Heller and Gottlieb would go back and forth for, what, two years, editing right. and revising, and he really entrusted Gottlieb. But it seemed like Tool was not ever able to get there. Yeah, I, I think he was receptive to the idea of it. That's what the... He, he, he sort of returns to this, uh, at least lip service, of revising and um i'm going to dive back in the novel and and yes i agree you know when gottlieb said there's too much of ignatius everywhere <laughs> tool comes back and says yes i agree um i have to rein him in uh but then what we see is that uh he he feels like he can't um and hmm. in, in, in fact there's there's a a letter uh, where he's really confessing to Gottlieb that it, it's almost like a Emily Dickinson kind of moment uh, mm-hmm. where, where, you know, she, uh, she, uh, an editor sends back some of her poems and she talks back, she talks about how, you know, he conducted surgery on them and, and she was offended, you know, so, and she just wouldn't accept this editor's, um, recommendations, even if they made market sense. So I, I think Tool was so attached to the novel and particularly the characters and the voices hmm. that from a writing standpoint, when he's writing Gottlieb a letter, sure, yes, I need to edit. Yeah, you're right. And then he gets to the manuscript and he just can't do it. Um, hmm. and, and if he can, it just doesn't reach to the point where Gottlieb you know, really wants it to be. So he became... Um, emotionally, logically attached to the novel and particularly the characters in the novel. Hmm. Um, and in part, they were, uh, they were based on people he knew. Yeah. And so he felt like the, the novel that he had created was the New Orleans he knew and, and, and loved, but also mocked. Um, there was a lot of, there's a lot about New Orleans that he didn't like and he found absurd. And so he wanted to satirize it. Mm. Um, so yeah, you know, I, the goal of publishing, I think he understood intellectually what Gottlieb was asking, but Mm. as an artist emotionally, I I don't, I don't think he ever reached the point where he could take a red pen to it. Do you think, do you think that at that point in his life, just his mental state was already deteriorating so much that he was unable to to think clearly about it i mean you you tell the story the pretty crucial story of him visiting the simon and schuster offices and Gottlieb not being there and he has a nervous breakdown and uh yeah behaves pretty um in a way that was uh (laughs) uncomfortable for everyone that was there and and became an issue for Gottlieb. So do you think that by that point, his mental state was too far gone for him to be able to, to function properly in that relationship and, and, and his interaction with the novel to be uh, rightly ordered? 
yes, overall, yeah, I, I, it, it's impossible to sort of pinpoint the moment where, you sure. know, he doesn't have a moment where he snaps. Sure. Um, but I, I do think, and then this comes from people who knew him, and, and, and that's why I reflected this in uh, the book, that, that in Puerto Rico, with the distance from New Orleans, things really started to make sense for him. Um, and he was out of the kind of toxic environment of his home with his parents, whom he loved. Uh, but but everything started to gain a kind of clarity after a while, and um, and then he returns to New Orleans, <laughs> and and I think that is what sends this kind of trajectory downward. Of course, he had his escape route, uh, but you know after a while, especially after things started um, deteriorating with Gottlieb, I think he felt he was trapped. Um, and he was going deeper and deeper into this trap. No. <laughs> Sorry, there's, I'm sure you can hear my two-year-old now. Oh, you're fine. You're fine. <laughs> um, yeah. So anyways, I, I, I think that, that um, I would say the beginning of kind of the downfall for him was his choice to go back to hmm. New Orleans. So you mentioned he was trapped. Would you say that his, that his mother, you know, she blamed Gottlieb, but do you think that some of the blame falls on her? I mean, certainly there's a history of mental illness in his family, but was this specter of his mother and his perhaps unhealthy relationship yeah. hurt with her, one of the driving forces towards his deterioration? Yes. I mean, you know, at, most of what we have of Thelma comes from after the book is published. Sure. Um, so you get this kind of, you know, she's sort of part the victim and she's part his savior. Hmm. But this was all a, a, a pretty orchestrated theater production. Uh, hmm. You know, some of it's true, but at the same time, you know, what she doesn't say is the way in which she placed the mantle of their financial viability on his shoulders as the only hmm. son. <laughs> hmm. I mean, so... You know, and, and she, at the same time, uh, she had a kind of living standard that she wanted to live. I mean, they, yeah. she lived beyond her means. Um, the whole family did in a lot of ways because they, she demanded that they live in uptown when, you know, all their family was from downtown. And um, mm. in some ways, that lifestyle allowed uh, him to flourish artistically. I mean, mm. uh, you know, he may not have uh, if he had lived downtown, but. So she also had that sense of that she was born for something bigger and just oh my gosh, as, yes. as he did oh, yes. yes, in sort of an unhealthy yeah. way. And, and I think it, it, that it is clear that she used her son as a way to satisfy what she felt she had not accomplished in interviews that she gave. Um, she wanted to be... Uh, really a star of the theater she probably would have taken the movies as well but but <laughs> but the theater was you know the highest art form hmm. um i think she was a bit ambivalent about him wanting to become a writer at the end she kind of owns it because it it, it propelled her own fame to be honest sure um sure. but you know she was pushing him into lead roles and into commercials when he was a kid. And so he was thrust onto the stage early on with this idea that he had to be, hmm. you know, great 
And um, I, I always sort of interpreted it as a somewhat of a cosmic jab that he would really retreat from center stage and prefer the margins to comment on mm-hmm. those that were on center stage. <laughs> do, you, do you think that had he lived... Well, I guess there's two parts to this question. Let's let's assume that he lived and his mother finds the manuscript in the box, um, steals it away from him, and somehow gets it to Walker Percy, and it's and it somehow gets published, and he's living, and then everything kind of blows up for him, or in some other way, it gets published and it, and it's successful. Do you think that had he he lived, he would have handled that fame well? Do you think that it would have um, been something that propelled him to? fulfill even more so the genius that you know people certainly think that he may have had or do you think that it would have been um you know further you know it, it would have pushed him further into um you know a downward spiral do you, in other words do you yeah. think in, in the end it would have ended the way it did regardless i how can we know that well i i i think that no matter no matter what would have happened with the novel um, he still would have been the son of Thelma Toole. Mm. Um, and he still would have had to struggle with what that meant. Mm. Now, at the same time, I do think that uh, if, if the book had reached a financial success, this may have provided him an out of, of New Orleans and maybe he could have gone to New York and sort of distanced himself. So in some ways, <laughs> that, that, that may have helped. I'm, I don't think it would necessarily solve the problem. I, mean, I don't mm. think... I don't think the cause of his suicide is just, you know, an equal sign to his mother or mm-hmm. to his, to his house, you know, that he was living in. Mm-hmm. Um, but I certainly think it intensified the situation. I mean, honestly, even the healthiest of minds walking in to, um, you know, to see your father relegated to a dark room in the mm-hmm. back who, you know, in muttering senile phrases and not, not even permitted to leave, not even, I mean, she wouldn't even let his own family visit him. Mm. Um, yeah, her, his father, uh, John Kennedy Toole's father. Yeah. I mean, he, and he, you know, he had, he was clearly senile, you know, I mean, he had a long descent and, and of course at this time, you, it, it's not like you went to go see a therapist. Uh, mm. I mean, you yeah. know, this was a matter of utter shame and it had to be controlled to save face. Hmm. Um, the only option, which is actually written into the novel, honestly, <laughs> I mean, is, is, is to go to charity hospital. Hmm. Um, and, and that was essentially the insane asylum is what they would have called it at the time. Hmm. I forget what floor. It was like the seventh floor of charity hospital. I mean, and, and then you're talking about a pretty horrible situation too. So, hmm. and, and then, you know, to feel, and, and his, so he has his father in the back and his mother putting pressure on him not to pursue the novel, by the way, um, but rather to get his PhD to become a more esteemed uh, professor, which, you know, he kind of went through the struggle in Columbia where he decided to become a creative writer. He, he, uh, he really kind of turned his back on criticism in a lot of ways, literary criticism. And, mm and kind of the profession of being a literary critic. So, you know, he felt like he was going backwards in, in, 
in a lot of ways. Mm. You mentioned the idea, um, which you talk about in the book at length, about how being away from New Orleans was offered him some clarity. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it was a very productive time. It seems to be the time when he was you know, most inspired to write and he produced the book and he had his most you know, productive, productive days. And yet he was so committed to New Orleans. He was so committed to writing what would, you know, the quintessential New Orleans novel or like the great, the great New Orleans novel. Yeah. Um, and, and so he loved this place, but he was most healthy when he was away from it. Do yeah. you think that that was something he was aware of? Do you think that he was, or he became aware of it? Do you think that he, um, was trying to, ins- well, and if he was aware of it, do you think he was, trying to reconcile that conflict because that would have to be uh, disorienting at best to, to know that you are most healthy when you can, when you are not a part of a place that you are both fascinated by and kind of in love with. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, at, at the same time, I'd, I'd say that I think for writers, it's not that unusual. Um, hmm. I mean, William Styron comes to mind. Hmm. Um, are, are you familiar with William Styron? Only Sophie's, only Sophie's choice, and yeah, I mean, yeah. I don't know anything about his life or anything like that. Right. So he I, he grew up in the same town that I did, Newport News, and he grew up. Oh, in a, okay. You know, um, he grew up in a time of painful segregation and racism, and he ended up, you know, going to New York and becoming a writer, very successful. But his first book was um, Tidewater Morning, and he lampoons the it was called Hilton village, this little, little village by the shipyard. Um, he was trying to render in his mind, I think, you know, his, his lineage, his heritage, the place Mm -hmm. that shaped him at the same time, he had a lot of animosity towards it. I mean, he had a lot of, uh, feelings that there were, there were things wrong about the people he, knew and and while he loved them he saw a great deal of injustices that he wanted to to address so i i mean writers to me are often of this conflicted sensibility that because they're spend they spend so much time on the margins observing hmm. oftentimes they're i think their first projects are trying to make sense of themselves to observe what is part of them and, and how do you neatly divorce those two? I'm not sure if anyone could ever, could ever really do that. It seems that that, you know, is especially true of so many Southern writers of the first half of the 20th century. Yeah. I mean, you even think about yeah. it like, Fla- well, of course I was thinking about Flannery O'Connor cause there's a difference there where, you know, she leaves and goes to New York, but is it upstate New York where she was in the, well, I guess she went to Iowa and then upstate New York. And um, she had this, you know, burgeoning career in front of her and then her health forced her to go home. And it seems that by going yeah. home, she was able to, she was able to be most productive and most sort of mentally and spiritually and so forth healthy while at home. You think about yeah. like, Barry is another example of a Southern writer who leaves, has this, the possibility of this great career, but then he rejects that and goes home. And that seems to be the healthy, productive choice for him. And then on the other hand, you've got, you know, John Kennedy Tool and, and and I'm, it's in in either case the 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 coming home is some sort of 
attempt to seems like to reconcile the history of the place that you're coming from and 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 the uh, the role that you're going to play in that. And right. so do you think that for John Kennedy Tool, as it, as with maybe Flannery O'Connor, there's an attempt to be a voice that helps reconcile the the conflicting nature of the history of the place that he came from. I mean, is that an, something he's attempting to do to to offer some sort of reconciliation or at least an attempt to explain it? It's a long-winded um, question. It, Sorry. Yeah, no, no. It, it's an interesting one. Um, I think in in the novel, what he wanted to do was to portray New Orleans as it is, and and that means embracing a lot of its cartoonish aspects, sort of the the buffoonery uh, of it. Um, but, but yet underlying that, I think there's a lot of, um, significance there. Uh, and, and so it, it's not just a, it's not a, just a mere caricature. Hmm. So, I mean, I, I, I mean, he talks about that and that, that he felt that no one had really written the true New Orleans novel because so many people have come from the outside. And so they were outsiders looking at it and didn't really understand what, what New Orleans was. Um, I mean, New Orleans is, is also a different place from the South writ large. Yeah, true, I, I mean, true. it just has a different kind of dynamic. I mean, it's very much like a cultural Island. Um, mm. And, you know, I've spent a lot of time in New Orleans. I'm not a New Orleanian, um, but I do know a lot of New Orleanians who have this conflicted relationship with the place mm. where they love it. And they celebrate it, but they also find it very restrictive and frustrating. The mm. corruption, um, you know, the crime, which you don't really get a lot of that in Confederacy of Dunces. Um, but, but just the kind of pressure that New Orleans can end up placing on the people that live there and yet have this kind of veneer of everything's laid back, every, you know, the big easy or, or whatnot. Mm. Mm. Um, and, and so, you know, this, the portrait that tool presents uh, is an authentic rendering to kind of the soul of New Orleans. And that's from people who, have, who live there who read it. I mean, people who live there uh, and read the novel, they're like, oh my God, this is, this is actually what it's like to live in this city, you know. Um, yeah. so many things don't make sense, <laughs> I mean, yeah. uh, but in that so many things don't make sense, somehow they're all kind of working, uh, in this bizarre way. Do you think that had Gottlieb been from New Orleans or had he submitted the book to a New Orleanian editor first, they, that would have helped, uh, minimize some of the, the problems that Gottlieb and some of the, you know, you know, some of the, you know, editors from Manhattan would have seen yeah. it in? Walker Percy seems to have found it appealing, and his wife certainly did. Right. Sure. I, I think if you understand New Orleans, then the book makes immediate sense to you. Um, mm. There's just kind of this familiarity with the way people talk and the way they, they the characters rather, talk and behave, and, and you're just sort of like, oh, this is it. Um, so there's that. It, that probably would have would have helped. At the same time, I, I reject the notion, even though a lot of New Orleanians assert this, I reject the notion that somehow you have to be familiar with New Orleans to get the book uh, or understand the book. 
Mm. And, and that's just simply not true by testimony of its wide reception and celebration and devoted readership in the Spanish-speaking world. Mm. Uh, so it was, um, I went to Madrid in 2015, and I will tell you mm. that I have never had a warmer reception <laughs> than in Spain. Uh, and I was interviewed by... Well, that might just be that Spaniards are like that. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, they were devoted to this book. I mean, they had a whole Ignatius day. That's really interesting. Um, yeah. So, and, and I, I talked to, um, there was this kind of forum that we had and, and I got to meet with the Spanish publisher who published hmm. Confederacy of Dunces. And through these conversations, I had this inkling, but, but he really crystallized it in my mind. I think that Confederacy of Dunces really pulls on the, the, the kind of picaresque uh, Don Quixote tradition, hmm. Hmm. which rejects the need for a highly restrictive structure. Um, and, and so the Spanish readership in their literary DNA hmm. are ready to move through a voluminous novel. I mean, Don Quixote is huge. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And not be concerned about the point at every page. I mean, this is Gottlieb's main criticism, right? It has to right. all have a point. Yeah, yeah. Now, I'd say... Something to tie like, it together. Right. So, and, and, and I would say, and now Gottlieb didn't say this to me or anything, but I think at the root of the English-speaking world, the DNA is Shakespeare. And so you have hmm. the five-act play. Hmm. I mean, how much hmm. more structure could you could you get then the five act play where every kind of movement between these acts has some kind of point to Mm. propel and connect. And it all culminates in this, in this final scene, Hmm. although arguably the final scene in Confederacy of Dunces is a bit Shakespearean, but um, (laughs) so anyways, I I think that, um, that the, the nature of, of the novel uh, kind of pulls on, it, it describes New Orleans, but it also pulls on literary traditions that just aren't quite in line with the standard Anglo package. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and my sense is that traditionalists, people in Manhattan in the publishing world, were uncomfortable uh, with, with that. Hmm. And I don't think it has anything to do with him being Southern. <laughs> yeah. Well, it strikes me that... that- both New Orleans and, well, I guess also Puerto Rico, where where you point out that he was so productive and seemed to be pretty happy, at least creatively. Oh yeah, um, both of those are, you know, are places that, well, at least New Orleans is very rooted in European culture of all kinds of different cultures. Oh, it's it was a Spanish colony. I yeah, mean, it, a, it, so, I mean, the the French Quarter. When you if you walk through the French Quarter, you're looking at Spanish architecture. Mm, yeah. The French architecture essentially burned down. Mm. So very much so. I mean, the the. I, I mean, you know, the New Orleanians like to pull on the whole French language Creole bit. Yeah. But um, there is a Spanish atmosphere um, that 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 weaves through the city. You know, we call it Spanish moss, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, but then even in Puerto Rico, where he's so creative, he seems to have been. You know, he's he's working with people who speak Spanish. Yeah. So, so that culture as well. I guess it can't be, it's not surprising then that he was most creatively productive and happy 
during in a place that was speaking Spanish, and then it's so appealing to Spanish people. Do you think that that is because the Spanish people recognize something in the soul of the book? Then is that what you're getting at? That there's something yes. in the soul of the book? Yes, that is familiar to them. Yes, and that and that that comes from me speaking to people, um, not only in Spain but just in the Spanish speaking world, who mm. connect with That's it so that way. Uh, that they they um, the, the Spanish speaking world sees for, for many people who, who are into literature in the Spanish speaking world, see Confederacy of Dunces as, you know, the great American novel, um, hmm. y- you know, and, and that, that strikes American audiences as odd because it's a cult classic here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I can't tell, I mean, it, how, how, I had to kind of step back at all when I'm in Madrid and people are dressed as Ignatius um, <laughs> and they're quoting the book and, you know, heavy Spanish accents and there's a hot dog cart, you know, I mean, they're, they're, <laughs> they're celebrating cool wow. the way uh, that, you know, the way that new Orleans celebrates Tennessee Williams hmm. every year. So is there, a, I don't need to ask you before I let you go. I need to ask you about this character of Ignatius then. Is there a, is do those people that are celebrating his character that way and dressing up as him? Is there a different response to him over there um, than there is in American readers? Do you think? Does it does it seem like they just think of him differently? They give him more. Do they love him more? Is there more credit to him? I mean, how do they? Is there? Well, is I'll just leave it at that. Is there a difference? Yeah, I don't know if I could answer that definitively. <laughs> um, I, That's fair. Yeah. I've spoken to more uh, English readers than I have Spanish readers. Sure. And yeah. I find Ignatius, uh, for many people, either they find him repulsive. Sure. Um, or they find him utterly entertaining. Yeah. Uh, I do think, though, just to go back to Don Quixote, I mean, we're accustomed to main characters, protagonists, that we kind of empathize with and emotionally connect to on, on some level. Hmm. And, and Don Quixote um, has moments where he is just really kind of pitiful. I mean, he, he, I mean, he's, he's, you know, he's losing his mind. I mean, it's, it's tragic to watch. It's also hilarious. I mean, it's absurd. Sure. Uh, and, and I've always taken Ignatius that way. I mean, I, I love some of the things that Ignatius says, but I would never say that somehow I, you know, would love to meet an Ignatius in real life. <laughs> right. I mean, part of the fun of Ignatius is watching him blunder up life so badly. <laughs> um, and and it's, it's, there's a kind of clownish quality to it. Um, but I, I also think that it gives people pause because there's almost a, a kind of dual cruelty to it that, that much of the novel is watching the main character fail. Hmm. Um, But at the same time, you know, for the Spanish reader, I mean, Don Quixote is delusional. Um, He is failing. I mean, there, there is the tragic comic there at the heart of Don Quixote. The tragic comic is at the heart of Confederacy of Dunces. And I just don't think that um, a lot of English readers, um, know how to render that (laughs) some of them do but but some of them it's it's a very uncomfortable um 
a hybrid. It's a very uncomfortable combination. Did John Kennedy Tool want readers to view, to sort of revel in and accept the absurdity of Ignatius or was that something that just sort of came out because he was, you know, a scholar of medieval literature? I mean, he was very familiar with, you know, Falstaff and, you know, right. the tradition that Falstaff comes out of and then even Don Quixote. And, you know, he was, this is not a guy who, he was very well read. He understood the tradition. He could have been oh, yeah. you know, a, a lifelong great professor. So, you know, that stuff was very deep inside of him. But was that, did it come out sort of accidentally or was he purposefully trying to get his readers, like, was he purposefully trying to make him absurd? Um, I think that if we look at, um, you know, his responses, his letters and, and the people he talked to, uh, I think Tool was having fun on the page. Mm. I mean, he, he was playing and I, and I guess for a writer, I mean, that's really liberating, yeah. you know, yeah. um, and so I, I don't, I think that a lot of these threads that I'm, you know, pointing out and that you've pointed out are there in the back of his mind. I mean, they are sure. ingrained yeah. in him. I don't like subconscious I, stuff. Right. I, I, yeah. I don't think, and I have no reason to believe that he's, you know, methodically weaving this together with the notion that readers will make all of these, uh, connections. Yeah. Um, Mm-hmm. Additionally, I do think that as a writer, uh, he worked through observation and and worked to put that down on the page, hmm. as opposed to you know much of the novel is dialogue. Sure, yeah, um, yeah. you don't have a lot of introspection. There's not a lot of um, soul searching that we see on the page really what he does is he presents a kind of cast of characters. In fact, the first paperback or one of the first paperback covers just sort of shows the cast of Confederacy of Dunces. It was the great... Yeah, I've seen that before. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so he, he presents this cast of characters and and then kind of goes to work playing with them. Um, and I think there's a kind of fun in that. Mm. There's a messiness to it as well. Mm. Uh, that... Gottlieb clearly didn't like, um, but some readers accept. I accepted it. Mm. Um, It makes sense that an editor whose life is spent trying to help essentially create or find order would have a problem with that and have to find find a way to to move past it, I guess. Like just the the way you think about writing in your life is and and the writing life. and, And that would make... A novel like this confusing so it's not or, or maybe not confusing but but difficult or troubling or something you'd have to work through like that right. makes sense to me yeah when you're talking about <clears throat> trying to become uh, a writer that you know makes a new york times bestseller list that's when you get into the market aspect of it hmm. um you know the question becomes for a publisher it's not only the question of how many copies are sold, but it is a question. In fact, Gottlieb even references it. I mean, he says if we, even if we published it, it wouldn't sell. So, I mean, he has in his mind, how many copies, what's the audience um, for this? And then, uh, you know, an, an author tinkering around on the page uh, may not have a, 
a substantial audience. So, I mean, I, I think if you were to, if we were to step back and let's just say, um, take out the narrative of suicide and, and let's say we didn't have Walker Percy's forward to kind of um, put that in there. Yeah. I think we'd look at a novel like Confederacy of Dunces and, and see it. If, if, if we had no concept of the author, um, we would, we would see absolute humor in it, but it's, it's, it's a kind of messy project. Hmm. And I, you know, at the same time, I mean, I, you know, I love, uh, the novel Tristram Shandy. Um, but my God, can you get any messier than that? (laughs) That's just like all over the place. Uh, so I think some readers are, are, are fine with this kind of experimentation and, playing around and, and others want something much more formulaic and, you know, peeling away all of what seems unnecessary. Do you, do you make that, do you, do you take that messiness to be, you know, more evidence of a genius kind of playing and maybe never figuring out exactly how to revise? Um, or is, or is all that quote messiness and even the, the character of Ignatius Riley are those kind of evidence of him spiraling into his mental illness. Well, maybe both. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it could be both. Um, I, I don't, I've never read the novel as tea leaves into his suicide. I mean, I, or, or even his, you know, eventual downfall, his demise, whatever. Um, I would like to clarify, though, I don't think his prose is messy. Mm, mm. Okay, I mean, I, I think yeah, yeah, as a yeah. writer, he is very talented um, and has exquisite control over his language. Mm, mm. However, the structure of the novel is certainly does not... Um, fit into a, a, a neat little package. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's the part where I feel like he's giving himself some maneuvering to play around. He wants this scene there and that scene there and this line there. And, you know, maybe they connect and sometimes they don't and that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, um, you know, as, as a writer, and I think most people who are artists do appreciate a glimpse into process, uh, a glimpse into kind of the playfulness of, of creativity. And so, yeah, we're, we're probably a little more patient with that as opposed to, um, someone who, you know, just wants to get the book and take it to the beach, read it and enjoy it and, you know, move yeah. on with their lives. I guess that's why it's got a cult following. <laughs> right. I mean, a large call following, but... It does. At the same time, I think when you read Confederacy of Dunces, um, you you have to be a reader who just enjoys the moment. Mm. Um, Mm. I mean, that to me, the book is a book of moments. And if you're not laughing, um, you know, at the beginning, and you're not laughing you know, when he's leading a revolt in the Levy Pants factory, then just, you're not, you didn't get it. <laughs> it's like, yeah, yeah. You're, you're not there uh, for, for whatever reason. Hmm. Um, but one of my favorite stories uh, is, which I learned in, in Madrid, uh, and I didn't put this in the book because I didn't know about it, 
until I went to Spain. And you had to say something for podcasts. Yeah, that's exactly. <laughs> uh, so Geraldo, Jorge Geraldo was the publisher for Anagramma. And Anagramma <clears throat> is known for publishing um, highly artistic books, experimental work. Uh, they don't shy away from uh, the experimental. They're, they're willing to take risks. Now, at the same time, they publish small runs. Uh, so they're not like a Simon and Schuster that's going to go all in with a marketing budget. So, so I think this, this illuminates the mystery of Confederacy to some degree. So Haralde is sitting in his office and he gets a little publishing leaflet from LSU press and he's looking through and he sees the cover of Confederacy of Dunces and reads, uh, the description. Now, of course, when he, he looks at the image of Ignatius, he immediately thinks there's a sort of sense of humor here. So he orders the, the novel from LSU. And almost immediately upon receiving it, he reads through it, he buys the rights. Now, this is before it became a bestseller. It was before Grove Press even had the rights to do the uh, paperback. So he saw something in, in the novel. So they publish, I don't know what it is, a couple thousand um, books, and they send it out for uh, their, I guess it's, I don't know, their 1980 spring or fall release. No marketing. And he starts getting these, this word that they're down, people are down in Barceloneta, the beach, right by Barcelona. Uh, to, you know, they got the book and there's people like laughing out loud on the beach. And the way he told the story is someone's sitting there on the beach holding the book. They're laughing out loud, cracking up, tears coming down. Someone comes up and said, what are you reading? And uh, the, the reader says the Confederacy of Dunces uh, um, in Spanish. I'm forgetting what the Spanish title is now. And the books start flying off the shelves. So he was within a month or two months or something like that. They're having to reprint more and reprint more and reprint more. Zero dollars in marketing. They didn't put a single poster up. It was completely organic. It was word of mouth. It was viral before the internet. So I think, you know, for certain readers, it just, they get it. Um, they latch onto it and, and it spreads and people share the book and it becomes a kind of treasured um, book in the libraries. And then for some other people, it's they despise it they hate it they're gottliebs <laughs> you know they just they try to read it they get through the first 10 pages and put it down and say i can't stand another word from ignatius and uh and and that's it well do you have time for two quick two quick questions yeah sure okay so here's my final two questions what do you make of the uh mysterious history surrounding the attempts to make movies of this book and do you think one will ever get made because there's been you know there was supposed to be a, um, a Steven Soderbergh version that starred Will Ferrell yeah. from the early mid 2000s, I guess. And there was the Stephen Fry was going to write one, and John Goodman, who's from New Orleans, yep. was going to play <laughs> Ignatius. <laughs> and then John Candy and Chris Farley were, you know, possibly going to be in it, but they both passed away. Or John Belushi, maybe. I mean, there's all these big names that were attached to it, and nothing has come to fruition. What What do you make of that? So I don't think there's the curse. <laughs> uh, for one, <laughs> um, I think yeah, Hollywood is Steven Soderbergh who said that, right? <laughs> yeah. Hollywood is Hollywood. Yeah. Uh, so, and, and, 
and I'm even more convinced of this as you know, Butterfly and the Typewriter is is being turned into a movie too. So um, I was going to ask you about that. Okay, as yeah, I was so, reading it, I was like, "This has to be a movie. It's, it's got to be." Right. So there, there are a couple problems. I've talked to some people who have worked on the various attempts. So I, I think there are two major problems with this idea of the movie. One is how do you do it? How do you take um, an episodic novel and package it into two hours or ninety minutes? Um, you're really taking something that has a very loose structure and imposing something that needs uh, a real clear structure. Mm. Um, so, so I think, I think there's just a, a problem of how to translate this. We, we talked about Tristram Shandy before. I mean, there was a movie of Tristram Shandy and the only way they could do it. I don't know if you saw it, but the only way they could do it. Is that Albert Finney? Oh, I can't remember. To remember. Yeah. I, I saw it, but it's been, you know, okay. I probably yeah, was so in college it, or something. It does this like whole meta thing, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's, like, yeah. it's like a movie about making the movie of Tristan Shandy. <laughs> so it's like the only, and it's, I mean, I thought it was a brilliant maneuver, uh, but it's a little disorienting to say the least. And um, so anyways, the, the whole, if, <laughs> if New York publishing felt Confederacy of Dunces was a mess, uh, I, I mean, the needs of Hollywood, I can only imagine, um, because, you know, you have to make money unless you're just going independent. So there perhaps was a chance early on to take the movie in the, in, you know, indie direction, but now it is so layered in debt and rights. <clears throat> so many people have been on it. It's changed hands so many times. Uh, and each time it changes hands, there's going to be investments. And ultimately, people want to get their money out uh, if they put money uh, if they put money in. Hmm. And so one of the things that can happen with with films is if they grow too big, uh, that is what kills them. That if you're looking hmm. at a movie, if you're a producer, let's say, you're looking at a movie project hmm. and you have to pay off all your investors hmm. uh, and they're ten million in or whatever. 50 million, whatever it is. And you're looking at it and saying, you know, this is going to go straight to Netflix and maybe be there for two weeks. You know, why would you ever do it? Hmm. Um, so the kind of beast of Hollywood and, and, and all that comes with it, uh, I think makes it highly unlikely that this will ever make it to, uh, the green lit column <laughs> of, <laughs> of movie productions. So are you at liberty to talk about the adaptation of Butterfly and the Typewriter? Sure. Yeah. So where is that in the production? You said it's being, it's being made into a movie? Yeah. So um, David Dubose uh, is the director. He's also the screenwriter. Um, he stumbled on Butterfly and the Typewriter in a rainstorm, actually, huh. um, in the French Quarter. This uh, seems appropriate. Yeah. He was walking to the French quarter. He ducked into the, I think it was the Louisiana music factory and they were moving. Um, and he, he was friends with the owner. And so he was just waiting for the storm to pass over. And he saw my book, picked it up. And, um, as he tells it, I'm not bragging. Uh, he said he just started reading it and couldn't put it down. In fact, he walked out of the store with it and said, I'll pay you back later. Um, he read it that, that night, I think. And then he called me, I think he called me the next day 
Um, wow. wow. And wanted to option it. So, <clears throat> so I just looked it up on, on IMDb and there's, that's a real cast. That's, you got Nick yeah. Offerman in there and that's awesome. Yeah. So, uh, they are, it's still in pre-production. Um, so there's, essentially they're working out financing. They have investors, they need to get sort of the right combination and Hollywood financing is, it's very complicated. <laughs> well, so Nick, I have been like a, Bobby Byrne is kind of inspired. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the feedback that DuBose has gotten has been phenomenal from really the highest levels. Hmm. Um, and the, the cast who's, who's yeah, read it, great, man. um, really loves the story. The benefit that flying <clears throat> the typewriter, I think has for adaptation is that it really does follow a lot of the tropes that, an average audience member would expect to see in a film. There's kind of a, you know, it, there's a rise, there's a fall. Um, yeah. it, you know, it does have kind of almost two parts to it where you can have the story of tool and then you have the story of his mother. So there's a beat hmm. between those. Hmm. Um, but for all of the celebration I've, you know, been expressing for tools experimentation, I, I will admit butterfly doesn't, follow that example <laughs> oh, yeah. um you know it, it has a three-part structure to it so i was much more organized um, <laughs> I, I think so uh yeah i think i think it has the story and the narrative make it a little um bit easier to translate uh for for a film than than confederacy of dunces that's not a slight for confederacy of dunces sure, I, sure, sure. i'm entertained by uh, all of the attempts but there's a part of me that I think will be hopelessly disappointed if, if, if Confederacy of Dunces ever reaches the screen because mm. the images that I've created in my head yeah. are the best to me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's one of the troubles of adaptation, particularly for a novel, is if readers yeah. feel deeply connected yeah. to the characters and whatever their Ignatius and um, their Santa Pataglia looks like, uh, in, inevitably a director uh, and a producer are probably going to fail in that regard, mm. yeah. no matter how talented they are. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. And at best you can probably really only, even if you trace the the basic steps of the novel, you're still at best going to only really, really be able to capture the spirit of it just given the limitations. Yeah. There so. is one, I was talking to one of the producers on one of the earlier versions of the film. I think it was in the nineties, one of the attempts and they were wrestling with how to do the script. You know, how, how do you structure this thing for a film? And they started with a conference for English professors. <laughs> and I laughed out loud. I said, God, I mean, highly riveting stuff there, guys. <laughs> like, like a panel of English professors giving papers, you know, talking from their... You know, he the producer hated it. I mean, he was you know he said this is this is your opening to the film. This is this is boring. Um, yeah. How do you hook people into this? Um, <laughs> so I think that's you know that's kind of an example of how even some of the top writers in Hollywood have struggled with how to uh, how to adapt it. I wonder, you almost seems like you'd have to start from the end. You'd have to like start with the drama, yeah, and escaping work. out. Yeah. Well, what do you think is going to be 
And this is my this is really my last question. What do you think is going to be the long term life of this book? I mean, do you think this book will go down, you know, two hundred years when we're, people are looking back at, you know, twentieth century literature? Will this go down as one of those books that people are still reading and remembering, and will be an example of the best American literature from the twentieth century? Um, I I would bet on that happening. The transition I've sort of been waiting to see is how this is integrated into the canon, the literary canon. So, I mean, who really has domain over what's considered a classic? Yeah. Really are the professors who are teaching it in, uh, you know, they're going to do an American literature class or a novel class. And so you get young people in there and they have to take it to, to graduate. And that's where they're going to encounter it alongside, you know, whatever else they're they're reading. Um, And so I, in that regard, I don't, I don't know. I don't think it is standard. Um, I'm not sure it's yet been solidly placed in the canon Mm -hmm. of American literature. At the same time, um, it's not going anywhere. Uh, You know, I mean, it doesn't need a champion to argue for why it's a good novel, the sales are solid. They have, I mean, and and new readers discover it every day. So I'm not seeing some kind of generational rift where you have, you know, I don't know, 40 somethings love the novel and 20 somethings just, yeah. yeah. I mean, there are young people who are reading it and, and love it. Um, when I give talks, I have many young people, um, approach me afterwards, connect with tool. Um, a lot of them have experienced abusive relationships at home, struggle with mental illness, and they just hone in immediately Hmm. to, um, some of the things the way he used humor to perhaps deflect tragedy and all those Hmm. kinds of things. Hmm. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, pretty much uplift the novel and, and secure its secure its place. Hmm. But it is an interesting question because there's this kind of there's this sort of popular side that's necessary that has lasted longer than you know perhaps even the most flash in the pan um, hmm. novels that appear. You know. Yeah. Um, at the same time, it does need some kind of movement towards the canon. Like, how do we place this yeah, in, yeah. in the larger scheme of American literature or world literature? I think it might have a better place in world literature, to be honest. But hmm. um, That's so interesting. Yeah. Just going back to your... The, the, I'm so fascinated by the popularity in, in Spain. And in, yeah, in, if, you have a, if you have a first edition... Um, throughout South America too. This is true. Hmm. You have a first edition Confederacy of Dunces. I mean, if you're a book collector and you have one of those, you have a um, something rare to be cherished. Hmm. This is this. I mean, it, it's true here in the U.S. as well. Booksellers know this. First edition Confederacy will go for a couple thousand dollars. Oh wow! But there is there is a, a, a kind of. Um, reverence default reverence in the spanish speaking world for this book and if you are lucky enough to have a first edition 
um, you know, among bibliophiles, yeah. uh, you know, you know, it's something that you maybe take out once a year <laughs> and show off and everyone's wow. Well, what you're talking about right there speaks to my listeners. It's a podcast for people who are obsessed with all those kind of things. So yeah. Um, well, Hey, I took enough of your time. You've got a two-year-old wandering around your house, you know, I know I can't believe how quiet he is. <laughs> now, see, how now much, I'm worried. How much cake did you give him? <laughs> just the whole pan. Just the whole pan. <laughs> <laughs> well, truly, thank you for joining me. And uh, if that movie ever does, uh, well, I guess when that movie films and is released, let's talk again. I'd love to talk to you about that process, and, and uh, maybe we can talk to you and the director or something. That'd be absolutely I'd love that if if that could work out. So, thanks absolutely. so much for the time, and um, hope everyone checks out the book. Where should people? What's the best place for people to find the book? Your website, Amazon. Do you have a preference? Um, you know, you, yeah, you can find it on Amazon. Uh, I always like to support but... local booksellers. <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah. Um, I, and, and one of the reasons, and your listeners will probably know this, is that they are kind of a lifeline for, not kind of, they are a lifeline for authors. They are yeah. the ones that do the best events. Yeah. Oh, um, yeah. So if you have a local bookseller, even though it might not be Amazon prices, you know, it's the good thing to do. But yeah, um, yeah. yeah if you don't want to leave your house ever, um, <laughs> you know, it, it's, it is on Amazon and all the others. <laughs> all right. Well, again, thanks so much. Go find your kid. I appreciate the time. All right. and, and, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's been fun, David. I appreciate yep. it. Talk to you later. Bye. All right. Thanks. Bye. Thanks so much to Corey McLaughlin for joining me. To learn more about Corey, head over to coreymclaughlin.com. That's C-O-R-Y-M-A-C-L-A-U-C-H-L-I-N.com. Be sure to check out Butterfly on the Typewriter wherever you buy books. Here at the Close Reads Podcast Network, we like to vouch for the independent bookseller. So check in with your local bookseller for a copy. It's well worth the read, I can assure you. And thanks to you for listening. Remember, subscribe, rate, review, help us spread the word. We'd really appreciate it. You can sign up for the Close Reads Podcast Network email newsletter at closereadspods.com. You can also follow us at Close Reads Pods on Instagram and Twitter. If you need to get in touch, email us at closereadspodcasts at gmail.com. For all of us here at the Close Reads Podcast Network, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening and happy reading. Happy reading.